listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of Record messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. In 1953, he announced his intention to reclaim land controlled by United Fruit Company in the name of the Guatemalan people. AIFLD abated a Guatemalan uprising led by the CIA-backed military liberation. Colonel Carlos Castilla Armas the collapse of Arbin's government was cheered in America, but Colonel Arma soon revealed himself to be a right-wing dictator intent on murdering his political opponents and eradicating the country's trade unions. The CIA went on to use an AFL-CIO-supported union in British Guyana in 1961 to undermine the duly elected government of Prime Minister Chad. Jagan and AIFLD and AFL-CIO staff were involved in the overthrow of labor-friendly governments in the Dominican Republic in 1965 and in Chile in 1973. The U.S. meddling in the affairs of foreign labor unions remained a secret for many years, revolutions first surfacing by accident in the mid-1960s during hearings into tax-exempt Philanthropic Foundations by Democratic Congressman Wright Patman of Texas. Patman, whose small business subcommittee was looking for tax abuses, stumbled into evidence that various real and dummy U.S. philanthropic foundations were used by the CIA as a secret conduit to direct U.S. funds to covert operations like J. Lubstone's American Union's also appeared to be involved as the treasures of oil, chemical, and atomic workers, BCAW, as well as the American Newspaper Guild were among those used to pass through large cash payments. Patman went public, causing an article about the mysterious CIA funds to appear in the New York Times on September 1st, 1964. During the, this period of time when some members of the labor movement was busy attempting to prevail the advance of communism elsewhere in the world. At home it found itself on the defensive from allegations of corruption. There had long been labor union related crimes. What did appear to be a relatively new and growing phenomenon in the post-World War II era was that of large unions organized along business lines tolerating extensive corruption and abuse from within their own leadership as well as attracting full-time criminals from without. The increase in memberships, the amount of money gathering in union treasuries, strike funds, and pension funds had grown so large it could not but have a transformative organizational effect. Controlling millions of dollars changed the character of the union leader's job. 
often his character as well. A certain amount of questionable practices, payoffs, and graft in the leadership ranks, but if they delivered on basic needs and stood up for workers, an acceptable level of corruption would be accepted. The New York waterfront corruption that reminded America of its problems with labor-related crime when New York Sun reporter Malcolm Johnson was sent to cover the murder of a Cunard hiring boss in 1947 on West Side Piers. Johnson investigated and wrote up his story, but intrigued, remained on the waterfront for the better part of a year, documenting an outlaw frontier of unchecked thievery, smuggling, shakedowns, kickbacks, bribery, extortion, and murder. An underworld syndicate, one whose reach extended throughout America and even the world. The syndicate is like a big trade association in crime. It began back in Prohibition and it is still strong today. It has interests in New York, of course, and in Hollywood, Miami, Chicago, Detroit, and other key cities. The heart of this enterprise was a labor union, the International Longshoremen's Association, through which Johnson wrote, mobsters are able to control all key jobs on the piers and rackets operate without interference. Johnson's Sun series, which won a Pulitzer Prize in 1949, helped inspire an even more public expose in 1950 and 51, when Tennessee Senator Estes Kepaber led nationally televised hearings into the underworld syndicate that featured the testimony of real-life criminals since Prohibition, the American public had known of the sensationalized activities of gangsters, and the 1940 prosecutions of Murder Incorporated had revealed the existence of a nationally coordinated Jewish and Italian mob execution squad. Harry Anslinger of the U.S. Bureau of Narcotics, who had been following the efforts by Charles Lucky Luciani, Meyer Lansky, and others to develop an offshore criminal haven in Cuba had, as early as 1946, understood that the syndicate was far-reaching in scope. Known formerly as the Senate Special Committee to Investigate Organized Crime in Interstate Commerce, the Kapoffer panels convened in seven seas, including New York, Washington, and Los Angeles. The hearings were televised. The public learned that the syndicate was a criminal phantom government that enforces its laws, carries out its own executions, and not only ignores but abhors the democratic process of justice, which are held to be the safeguards of the American citizen. The report that emerged from the hearings was very much of its time. Imagining labor corruption not unlike communism to be a secret government of criminals capable of subverting the country from within. The Kipafer hearings was covered by newspapers and a new medium televised. Executives of the three major stations were excited that such civic-minded 
programming garnered high ratings as 20 million Americans were believed to have watched some of the Chipaver hearing. Only one in five households had a TV set. Those who did not gathered outside of stores who had them displayed in windows. The link between organized crime and the Longshoremen's Union of New York was central to both Malcolm Johnson's and Estes Kipaver's work and, of course, raised uncomfortable questions about organized labor. It was Robert Kennedy who would investigate this connection more closely. Senator John McClellan, chairman of the Committee of Arkansas, was sparked by an incident in New York City on the evening of April 5, 1956, when New York post-labor columnist Victor Raisel, who had just left Lindy's steakhouse, was attacked by a group of men who tossed acid in his face. The assault came only a few days after Riesel had published a column criticizing New York's trucking and clothing industries for alleged connections to organized crime. Riesel had named John DeGuardi, also known as Johnny Dio, a union officer and racketeer in the garment business who'd already done time in Sing Sing. He was convinced Dio had hired his attackers. Riesel went on Meet the Press to tell the story of his attack. He asked why the government can investigate a foreign threat such as communism but ignore a local threat of labor racketeering. George Meany quickly responded saying that just as we have defeated the enemies without who tried to desperately to destroy the labor movement so will we defeat enemies from within. Those wrongdoing can undermine the effectiveness of everything we are trying to accomplish. The AFL-CIO's Ethical Practices Committee was ordered to expand its staff, confront the dilemma as others prepared to deal with what loomed as a major public image crisis for Federation and all organized labor. It was Clark Mellenhoff, a lawyer and investigative reporter for the Des Moines Register's Tribune, who approached Robert Kennedy about the possibility of following up on Riesel's suggestion for a formal inquiry into labor racketeering. Kennedy was then serving as counsel to the Senate Permanent Committee on Investigations, which had been recently looking into corruption on the part of suppliers and low-level government officials in the clothing procurement system of the armed forces. At the time, all labor unions were required to turn in annual financial reports to the Secretary of Labor as they are today, but then they lacked the staff and will to scrutinize these submissions. The information was considered confidential. It is public today. Kennedy's first stop was to visit several cities where labor corruption had been reported. Accompanying him was former FBI agent and accounting expert Carmen Bellino. They focused primarily on International Brotherhood of Teamsters with 1.6 million members, the nation's largest trade union, and on meeting journalists and police knowledgeable about its activities. During this trip, Kennedy heard enough tales of extortion, thievery, and evidence to more than confirm the claims he'd heard. More important than Kennedy's outrage at this early stage of the inquiry were the unique skills of his traveling companion. For Bellino, a table full of canceled checks, ledgers, 
and scraps of paper offered a forensic key to the Teamster's wrongdoing, and the accountant confirmed to Kennedy that deceit and phony transactions appeared to abound. Because of the difficulty of tying individuals to the cooked books, Bellino warned Kennedy not to start this unless he was ready to go all the way. Kennedy replied, we're going all the way. The probe first looked at Teamsters President Dave Beck, the former head of the Union's Western Conference, who had taken over the IBT in 1952 from the Union's aging founder, Daniel J. Tobin, the legendary old Danny boy, having served for 45 years. Kennedy and Bellino suspected Beck of playing fast and loose with union funds, making questionable purchases, often by siphoning money through a Chicago labor relations intermediary named Nathan W. Shefferman, a longtime union buster for Sears, Roebuck, and company. Beck had spent union money on everything from home appliances to boats, as well as lavish renovations to his family's home in Seattle. Instead of using the Standing Senate Permanent Committee on Investigations to examine abuses in organized labor, the Senate had created a new panel, the Select Committee on Improper Activities in the Labor or Management Field, to be chaired by John McClellan of Arkansas and endowed with an appropriations of $350,000. Kennedy was chief counsel in addition to McClellan the other Democrats on board were Sam Urban, Patrick McNamara, and John Kennedy, who joined reluctantly but at his brother's insistence in order to keep Strom Thurmond, known then as later for regressive views on all questions, off the committee. Republicans included Urban Ives, Carl Mutt, Barry Goldwater, and Joseph McCarthy. Kennedy issued a subpoena for Beck in early 1957, but Beck conveniently left the country to spend several weeks in the Caribbean. He claimed the extended vacation was for his wife's health. When he did finally appear, he took the fifth. George Meade, with agreement of Walter Ruther, had warned that any union official taking the fifth in order to evade the committee's questions would be expelled from the AFL-CIO. In one day, Beck took the fifth more than 65 times, unaware of the way the TV audience would see that the taking of the fifth so many times would be seen as a guilty plea. He would be forced to resign his Teamsters post and later was convicted of grand larceny and tax evasion. He was sentenced to five years in the federal penitentiary. James Jimmy Hoppe, the son of an Indiana coal miner who died when James was four, he and his family moved to Detroit where the young man left school after the seventh grade to work on the loading docks of a grocery warehouse. He led his first strike at age 19 and brought his 300-man union into the Teamsters Local 299. The Teamsters' enormous organizing strength by controlling over-the-road trucking as well as local delivery drivers and warehousemen. They could virtually bring local, regional, or even national commerce to a halt. Hoffa and Deb's effort to grow the Teamsters had led to such expensive membership growth. The IBT's welfare and pension fund grew to almost $250 million, making the Teamsters the largest and wealthiest union in America. 
Hoppe was no stranger to Capitol Hill, having recently been the subject of a House investigation led by Representative Claire Hoffman of Michigan and Went Smith of Kansas into the misuse of some of those vast IBT resources. It was alleged that Hoffa had handed over control of a Teamsters Health and Welfare Fund to a startup insurance agency ran by Allen and Rose Dorfman, who were related to Paul Red Dorfman, a suspected organized crime figure who headed a large Chicago trash haulers union. The Dorfmans had no prior experience in insurance took as much as $3 million in fees and commissions from the fund, half of which resulted from the overbilling and excessive fees. The Hoffman-Smith inquiry was mysteriously terminated before it could complete its work, probably under pressure from the Republican Party, which was eager to win support for an upcoming election in Michigan. Hoffa came under scrutiny by the McClellan Committee due to his connections to Johnny Dio, the New York garment business racketeer. Suspected of ordering the assault on Victor Riesel, Dio was suspected to have helped Hoffa maintain paper locals in New York City. When Dio arrived at the Capitol to testify, he managed to make headlines before uttering a word. Irritated when news photographers came to close to snap his picture, he erupted in anger, striking one of them and demanding, Don't you know I have a family? Hoppe, in contrast to the excitable Dio, exuded confidence as he took the witness stand, faced Kennedy's questions. He knew the committee had limited authority and that, like the Hoffman-Smith investigation, its findings would either be marginalized by backroom political maneuvering or it would simply run out of steam. Hoppe returned Kennedy's enmity in full, referring to him as a friendless person, a bully, a spoiled brat, someone who never had to work, wouldn't know how to work, a curly-headed smart aleck. In early 1957, Hoffa approached John C. Chesty, a former member of the Secret Service, and offered him a salary of $2,000 per month if he could get a job with the McClellan Committee in order to tip off Hoffa about witnesses the government had lined up and to feed Kennedy information that would help doom Dave Beck, whom Hoffa was eager to succeed as Teamster's boss. Chesty, whose character Hoppe obviously misjudged, promptly reported the proposal to Kennedy. The FBI then managed to photograph Hoffa on March 13, 1957, appearing to hand a payoff to Chesty in Washington DuPont Circle, leading to Hoffa's arrest on bribery and conspiracy charges. Hoffa, during his trial, claimed that he thought he was paying Chesty for legal services, not a bribe. His legal team, seeing the jury was two-thirds African-American, had auction legend Joe Lewis show up in support of Hoffa, but also hired Martha Jefferson, a black attorney. He was also known for opposing segregation in the IBT. Kennedy had told reporters that he would jump off the Capitol if Hoffa was acquitted. When the jury did just that, Joe Lewis asked by an intermediary to give an autograph for one of Kennedy's sons, replied, I'll give it to you for his son, but not for him. Tell him to go take a jump off the Empire State Building. The committee exposed a scheme where in the mid-1950s, Hoffa and other Teamster executives 
used money, one half million dollars, and used it as collateral for a loan of a developer in Orlando, Florida. Pitched to members the prospect of buying plots of land in a retirement village known as Sun Valley. The developer would make one half of the plots available to Hoffa privately at a steep discount. There were a few houses built there and a short road of about 2,000 feet. Even with all the scrutiny of Hoffa and his hoodlum empire, his popularity swelled. Hoffa compared himself to Samuel Gompers, William Green, and Philip Murray. Hoffa assured his followers, I have given 25 years of my life to fighting for the Union. I have fought for what I believe is right and good against forces more vicious than you can imagine. I propose to continue that fight as long as I live. We will be going into a more complete history of labor racketeering in the future. In these episodes, we will discuss the how and why crime organizations move into unions. We will discuss specific locals and specific cases that involve unions and organized crime. Thank you. with your family and friends please rate our podcast on itunes it helps others find us if you want to contact us to suggest a topic have a question or just want to say hi our contact information is in the show notes along with our sponsor the national league of justice and security professionals where the members come first